You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there and welcome back. Today, Dan and I are super excited to be talking with Dr. Tom Murray. He is an author, international trainer, educator, and couples and sex therapist supervisor. He's a widely sought after expert in sexuality and intimate relationships. And for 20 plus years, Dr. Murray has worked with everyday folks to embrace their weirdness, shed labels and shame, lean into anxiety, and build better and stronger relationships. He directs a path to wellness integrative psychiatry, and he's here today because he authored the book, Making Nice with Naughty, an intimacy guide for the rule-following, organized, perfectionist, practical, and color-within-the-lines type. When I started this podcast, Melissa, I uh, I don't think I actually ever really considered us having an episode like the one we're going to have today, where we talk about um, sex therapy, the process of writing a book on sexual health. Um, and how really important this area of mental health and wellness is. The reality is it is a really important area of mental health. And so having you on today, Tom, to talk about it, I think is is awesome. It's exciting. And just thank you for being here. Well, thank you to you both for having me. It's a delight. Yeah. So a lot of people dream of writing a book, but not everybody actually writes their book. But you're here because you have done it. And I met you when... This book was an idea that you had. It was still in its dream mode. But we're here today because you're one of the people who made it happen. And I happen to know that your book launch went really well. And so before we get into the process of writing a book, tell us a little bit about your book and the reasons you were inspired to write it. The title has uh, uh, was birthed years before the book uh, uh, came about. I had this title, Making Nights with Naughty. And, and to me, it just had this ring to it. And I'm like, ooh, there's, there's something there. And uh, it went through a number of iterations um, in, in how I was going to go about writing the book. And then eventually I landed on um, writing it about this uh, observation that I had as a sex therapist that a lot of the clients that come in who have sexual problems have problems of too much self-control that they that in essence naughtiness has gotten a bad rap in their life where they felt like in order to uh, be worthy as a human being they have to be organized and productive and rule oriented and and consistent and predictable and and pursuers of comfort and rely and familiarity and all of those kinds of of elements and and those ways of being in the world underlies many the many unhealthy ways that they experience particularly related to sex and intimacy and so that's kind of how um that that the book was birthed was based on that population this is great this is a good lead into what my question is and i wanted to say that um i really enjoy i've been on your website um, and, um, I listened to a couple of your videos and you have a way of words and I really appreciate the way you explain stuff. And the question I have is you made a statement that I've never met, um, anyone with a broken brain and most I've met people with broken hearts. And I thought that was really 
powerful. And I think that goes to what you're saying that, you know, whatever people's issues are that you're confronting with them, you know, it's not that there's something wrong with them. It's more that you're trying to get them to 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 get to a place where maybe they have a better understanding of themselves than other people. So in regards to the book, in regards to general, I guess my question is, why is sex and sexuality, why are they important and meaningful parts of life? Well, uh, you know, often we don't give much time and attention to sex and sexuality unless they're not working. Mm-hmm. That's true. Right. That's true. So yeah. this, 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 when it's not working, it really gets to the core of one's insecurities. We, we have a deep desire to feel like we belong, that we're desired, that we're wanted. And whenever we get a message that we're not desired, that we're not wanted, it infuses a, a force of vulnerability that can really quite bowl people over emotionally. You know, we're all very sensitive to being kicked out of the tribe, if you will, you know, and anything mm-hmm. that, that, that symbolizes, oh, we're not wanted. Uh, that's a very scary proposition, especially when you've committed to being with someone and you're not getting the feedback that you're desired or that you're wanted, right? Or uh, for a lot of people, they, you know, particularly the over-controlled type of person, and that's really what the book is, is, is focused on, is the mm-hmm. over-controlled temperament or the, the, those who have too much self-control. Mm-hmm. That, that uh, uh, temperament can lead to a number of the sexual dysfunctions that we see or the sexual problems that we see, such as low sexual desire, uh, uh, rapid ejaculation, delayed ejaculation, anorgasmia, uh, painful sex such as vaginismus. I mean, there's just a whole wealth of uh, areas in which having too much control can impede on one's experience of of, of sex and, and intimacy. And so you only really are paying attention to it when it is actually a problem. And I should say, particularly for over-controlled people, when they're over-controlled nests, if it were to become a problem, where does it become a problem? In their sex and intimate relationships. Mm-hmm. Now, Tom, some of the, you know, are the people who we're often talking to are mental health providers on the podcast, right? And so some people who are listening might be like, oh, yes, like I know a client like that. Uh, or I, I maybe could read this book because it would be beneficial for my clients. You know, as mental health therapists, we really receive minimal training in sexual health, even though it's something that applies to everybody. Our training is yeah. really limited. And one of the things that I remember you said when we were talking about your book, you said, you know, actually, therapists are some of these people I'm talking about, right? These (laughs) over-controlled perfectionists. And, you know, so there might be a dual benefit for people listening to this. You know, we're not immune from, you know, having issues with mental health, our sexual well-being. And so although on one hand, people might be thinking about their clients, I'm wondering if you can also mention some of those thoughts that you have about the content that you're talking about today as it relates to the the therapy community. Yeah, so it might be helpful for me to differentiate between uh, under-controlled and over-controlled. So I've used the the over-controlled, but the opposite, if you will, is under-controlled. And these are temperaments. Uh, And temperaments are just stable ways of showing up in the world, like introversion, extroversion. 
They're not mm-hmm. good or bad. They're just your ways of showing up in the world. Mm-hmm. So imagine being a child and and you're given a gift. You know, the under-controlled child will be exuberant and high energy and just so excited, just down and, and just uh, spewing out their enthusiasm for, for the gift. The over-controlled person will be much more seduced. They, they, their hands, you know, stay very close to them. You know, they don't, they're not wagging their hands way out in front of them or on the side. You know, they may have some enthusiasm, but it's much more contained, right? And so if you just think about your own temperament, what kind of child were you? Were you more of the tentative type, the more contained type, the the hyper-responsible, the hyper-vigilant? Did you have strong opinions about how the world should be, must be, and has to be, right? Do you go behind your partner to rearrange the dishwasher because they didn't do it mm-hmm. just right? Well, if, if you said yes to any of that, you're likely over-controlled, that you lean over control. Now, with any given temperament, it's a, a matter of degree. Someone can be slightly over-controlled, and some can be uh, significantly over-controlled in ways that really impair their life, such as anorexia, mm-hmm. obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, a paranoid personality disorder, uh, sometimes dependent personality disorder, can be really on that very far end of the continuum. But most people, of course, aren't going to be all the way down there, right? The evidence seems to suggest that the over-controlled temperament is disproportionately represented among therapists. But what the overall evidence is, is that people who go to graduate school in general tend to lean over control. Interesting. Yeah. I would imagine that probably lawyers are probably fall in that category as well. We can get we, we can even get rid of the word probably. <laughs> <laughs> having having a good number of lawyers on my caseload, uh, uh, we can get rid of the word probably. <laughs> I was hedging my bets, but I figured that would be the case. <laughs> yeah, and, and let me reiterate from society's perspective, being organized, being a good planner, being a perfectionist, all of those things are seen as virtues. So over-controlled people get a lot of positive feedback for how they show up in the world, mm-hmm. right? And, and they are, they are strengths. Again, I'm only talking about when the, the self-control is getting, um, is, is at a degree where it's impairing people's intimate and sex, yeah. sexual relationships. You know, uh, for example, in over-control, the over-controlled temperament has two subtypes. And I didn't mention this in my book, and I kind of regret that I didn't mention it. So you get to hear it, your listeners get to hear it uh, now. And that is, there are two, two subtypes, the overly agreeable, and then the overly disagreeable. So the overly agreeable is the need to be liked and the overly disagreeable is the need to be right. Mm. So the people who are over-controlled, who are overly disagreeable, are the ones that are more likely to say no to something first. Hey, do you want to go to this party this Saturday? No. Right. And then the overly agreeable might say yes, even if they don't want to. Mm-hmm. Right. So you mm-hmm. can imagine 
how those different subtypes affect sex and sexuality differently. Oh, yeah, sure. Such as having uh, sex or engaging in sexual acts that aren't particularly comfortable to you, but you're Mm -hmm. doing it because you're afraid of hurting your partner's feelings if you don't do it. Or the overly disagreeable is having rules around what is acceptable sexual behavior. You know, only missionary. We can only do missionary, and missionary is the only thing. Even if for the partner, it's not all that satisfying, mm-hmm. right? So it gives you a, a little bit of a, a flavor there. Is there one over the other, or is it about equal um, that you find really kind of affects relationships between people or couples who come to you, or you know? You're, you're at, if I'm understanding, you're asking whether uh, uh, the overly disagreeable versus the overly agreeable, vice versa, uh, uh, are more prominent in the the issues that I see. That was a much way, better, elegant way of saying it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I see that. I see it. It's quite mixed. Okay. Right. It's quite mixed, and sometimes we can be domesticated in ways that exaggerate our bio temperament. Right. So women, I think, are much more domesticated to be agreeable mm. than than men are. Right. But there are certainly a good deal of men who do things uh, in order to be liked, you know, rather than to be right. So it's, it's but our, our how we're domesticated certainly has an impact on how that manifests later in life. Is that also the, what you're describing? Is that also kind of some that kind of taboo or stereotype about women shouldn't be dominant or that, you know, you know, men are supposed to be the dominant, you know, ones. And it, it, does that kind of play into that kind of um, relationship or uh, I guess categorization there as well? Well, first of all, let me just say that as sex therapists, we uh, don't talk about taboos. We talk about taboobies. Perfect. I love that. Taboobies. I like that. <laughs> are you using that? <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that let, let me just kind of broadly speak to this. What people who are over controlled fear ultimately is uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of their drives, a lot of their behavior is what can I do to prevent uncertainty? So, the person who has right. a need to be liked is engaging in whatever behaviors in order for them to be liked so they don't have to face the uncertainty of what it will be like to be disliked, right? Or sense. the person who is who needs to be right uh, doesn't have to face the, the humility or the embarrassment or the shame that might come about from actually being wrong. And when you fear uncertainty and then act in ways to medicate that interpersonally, you're then not showing up in vulnerable ways. And when you aren't willing to show up in vulnerable ways, it impedes your ability to have connection, which then disrupts your level of intimacy. So Tom, talk with us a little bit about the process of writing this book, right? You had this idea, you have all of this experience in providing sex therapy services and which you know how to do really well, right? Like you're well-versed in in how to do therapy and how to address these issues. Writing a book, I imagine, was a whole other, a whole other thing, right? And right. a lot of people want to write a book, um, but maybe they don't because they don't know how to do it. Um, so can you talk with us about the process of writing your book, maybe some of the challenges that you encountered? For sure. So 
um, you know, like a lot of over-controlled people, uh, if I'm going to be, people either lean, they're, they're, they have a tendency to lean towards depression or anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. I think in general, people tend to, if they're going to experience one, they're going to experience one or the other more, more often. I tend to lean towards anxiety. And, uh, but there was one summer that I had the worst depression I had ever felt. And this was the, the summer of 2016, I think it was. And uh, what led to it in retrospect was that I had it in my mind, starting back in like December of the prior year, I was going to write my book. I was going to write my book and I constantly think I'm going to use the summer. I'm going to use the summer to write my book. Well, June came around, <laughs> July came around, August came around, and I, writ- I wrote nothing. And it just was a, you know, just caused this kind of deep, deep depression. And I was helped by something that I heard, which is if you really want to know what someone really wants, don't listen to what they say they want. Look at what they have. So what's the evidence of wanting to write a book? Sitting down, putting words to paper. That's the evidence. Mm -hmm. If there is no evidence that you want to write the book, then the reality is you want to do something other than writing the book. Mm -hmm. So I had to get very clear that if it's true that I want to write a book, I needed to do, I needed to do something. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. and what I found to be immensely helpful was to recall what got me through my dissertation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what helped me to get through my dissertation is I met with my uh, chair every single week. Every single week, I would write pages, hand them over. During the the ensuing week, he would edit them. Then I would meet the next week. He would give me his feedback, and I would give him more pages. And it was this constant back and forth until one day I was done. And so applying what was successful at that period in my life to uh, writing this book, I realized I needed to work with a writing coach. Mm. It's accountability. Having the accountability was uh, essential. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, certainly people can go as far as having someone write the entire book, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I knew that that wasn't going to be an option for me because of the mm-hmm. nature of the, of the content. You know, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to find somebody who uh, understood sex therapy and understood the, the theories that I was applying uh, to sex therapy. So it was, a, you know, me writing the book, but having someone to interview me, ask me questions, record the interviews, creating outlines based on those conversations, putting the meat on the bone, doing that repeatedly over a number of months, then one day you're done. Interesting. It's an interesting way you describe it because I think a lot of people think like, okay, I want to write something or write a book. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to pound it out. And you're basically saying, for you, and, and and I think maybe even a lot of people, that's like, no, that's like the worst way to go about doing it. <laughs> well, it just wasn't going to work for me. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, but I, I think there's I, a lot of people feel that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the other thing is that I'm aware of as a writer is that I tend to want to throw in the kitchen. I went through everything, including the kitchen sink, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, just a lot, a lot of stuff. And it helps to have, for me, a collaborator 
who's able to say, yeah, that's not necessary, that's not necessary, that's mm-hmm. not necessary. Because mm-hmm. right? most people reading these books, they're, they're, they're really wanting to understand themselves, their situation, and they want solutions, mm-hmm. right? And I can be kind of academic if left to my own devices. So when you talk about, you know, you know, outsourcing a book, is that kind of what you're re- referencing, that type of process? Not only, uh, yes, there's, there, and you can outsource so much. Like I outsourced, uh, I hired an editor, I hired a book designer, uh, which I didn't even know was a thing where they, you know, uh, go throughout the book and create graphics for your chapter headings and all that kind of stuff to make it really pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I hired a, a designer for the book cover uh, and, and one can, uh, and, and I should say I self-published, so I didn't go through a traditional publishing house, which is where they would be covering a lot of those expenses mm-hmm. at the, uh, but you're paying for it through your royalty, mm-hmm. right? Uh, uh, which is significantly lower than if you um, uh, self-publish. And now, I think I read that that around 70%, if not more, of books are bought through Amazon. And, and so, uh, you know, to what is the real value of these traditional publishing houses when you can just go on Amazon and publish your book via Amazon? Mm-hmm. And then they have, you know, Amazon has a number of different ways to publish so that you can um, decide how you would want to distribute your book. So, so for example, Amazon has a, a, a option where they are the sole distributor. Um, and you may get a little bit uh, more of a royalty, but you, you wouldn't be able to have your book in, in say, a Barnes & Noble or uh, Books A Million or whatever it is, these kind of, or even your, your local indie bookstore, they wouldn't be able to purchase it mm. uh, at the discounted rate. So, um, uh, my book is available on Amazon as well as anywhere fine books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> now, Tom, how did you learn about that process of self-publishing? Was that with your coach or was that some other way? It was a mixture of um, uh, my coach, you know, suggested that I self-publish uh, as well as, you know, there, that's the beauty, you know, when we were kids, you know, people don't understand there, there, there wasn't YouTube. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I have this conversation with my son all the time. <laughs> He's yeah, shocked. And, what do you mean? There's no stream. What? You can't just turn the TV on. There was streaming. No, no, there was not. <laughs> there was that. And, and it's it's uh, you know this the the access of information now to begin to figure uh, 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 things out. You know, um, outsourcing. I also outsourced. Um, Amazon ads, right? Because let's face it, Amazon wants their grease, their wheels greased a little bit in order to, to get your book promoted. Uh, also, they have this thing called A-plus content. So if someone goes onto Amazon and looks up my book, Making Nice with Naughty, and, is, and scrolls down, they're going to see these infographics. So I had you know someone oh. design the infographics to create more appeal when someone visits the book. And I did I, a lot of I, I that. I saw those. Fiber. I was, I saw, I, cause I looked your book up when it was on and I actually saw, I know exactly what you're talking about. Interesting. Yeah. 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 And, and so I use Fiverr, uh, which is a, one of those gig economy websites that you just can uh, look up various services and, and that those who are providing a service that, that you're needing. 
And I was able to move the process along that way. Now, one of the things I'm going to let you kind of like brag about your book, right? Because not only did you self-publish, but like you did it well. I know that you had some really good outcomes from your book launch. So would you talk with us about how that turned out for you? Yeah. uh, You know, when I was able to, I tapped into the community that I knew would be most interested in the content. And I think that that's, that's really key is who, where are the people that want to read the book? And so uh, a big portion of my book uh, is based on Thomas Lynch's radically open dialectical behavior therapy. And so that meant I'm going to market to us, to other RODBT therapists. Because they also have the clients, right? So they're the gatekeepers to the people who are also more likely to want to read the book. So I marketed to them. And uh, there's these Reddit, you know, sub uh, subreddits who are uh, that that address a particular um, issue that is reflected in the book, like perfectionism or obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Those are the types of people who are likely having the sexual problem, right, that would be most interested in, in reading the book. So getting very clear on, on where your audience is and then go ahead and putting your, your laser focused on, on reaching that audience. Did someone um, – was this something through just your own experience or training – that you knew or you read about, like you went and did a lot of research online to figure out how to do this. Like, you know, that's, it's, it's, I think it's amazing that you did this. And, and, you know, if I'm sitting here and you hadn't told me that, I wouldn't even known how to do that myself if I were going to publish a book. You know, how did you figure out how to do that? Was that what the book, um, kind of, um, the, the consultant you worked with, is that what they kind of guide you, you on? Or how did you kind of come by this information? Well, you know, there's a therapist in our community, uh, Laura Long. Mm-hmm. And uh, Laura uh, really exposed me to this idea of identifying who your who your ideal client is, and that your materials should really be catering to your ideal client. And that's mm-hmm. that that uh, made a huge impact on me. And so that's how I began to think about uh, uh, marketing the book. Is okay, who's the ideal client? Where would they uh, be? Who are they talking to? How can I get in front of those people, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and you know, doing hashtags, for example, is another way of doing that. People who are looking up uh, uh, TikToks on perfectionism, right? They're the, they're the ones that are going to be interested in in looking at the TikTok or the Instagram reel, and they're going to see, oh, you know, he wrote this book, and hopefully that inspires the interest. So really, getting clear about who the ideal client is, or, or in this case, who's the ideal customer. Have you found in your own practice or in talking with other professionals um, in, in the mental health world, maybe even your particular area, um, have you found that your book, you know, people come to you and say, hey, you know, I read your book and that's what's guiding me now to come get therapy on my own. Or, you know, hey, this has really helped my clients. And here's some of the discussions that this has helped raise with clients who may not even begun to even know how to think about this or know what questions to ask. Have you found that to be the case? Have you gotten that kind of feedback? Yeah. I, uh, somebody once said that uh, uh, they read it and it, it felt so 
personal that they felt attacked in a positive way. Oh, wow. You know, like, yeah. like, oh my God, how can this person see me so clearly, mm-hmm. right? Um, and here's the thing, you know, I, I have to remind my clients all the time. And, and my style as a therapist, I tell people, I'm a, a tell you how it is, no beating around the bush and occasional karate chop to the throat. You said uh, that online. I love that quote, by the way. You said that on your website. I love that. Uh, and, and you know, that's just me. And I know that's not for everybody, right? A lot of people need the touchy-feely. And, and how do you feel about that? And, and I'm so glad that there are therapists out there who I can refer to who provide that kind of service. But most people come to me because they want their damn erection. Yeah. They want their <laughs> orgasm. They don't want to be in therapy for... Uh, um, months and months and months, right? And same with marriages. When people come to, people don't come to a marriage therapist out of a luxury. They come because they're in crisis. Yeah. You know, and and my style as a marriage therapist is that people hire me to be an advocate for the relationship. And so as the advocate for the relationship, I get to sling shit in all directions. <laughs> right? And so that's my, my style as a, a, a therapist and i hope that that's what came through in the book is this mm-hmm. this compassion but this also this i'm just you know telling you how it is that for example if you're in a monogamous relationship it is acceptable it's totally appropriate for you to be no longer interested in sex it's just not appropriate for you to expect your partner to also not be interested in sex mm-hmm. Right, because monogamy is an agreement to that that each person is 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 able to enjoy each other's bodies in, in ways that other people don't have access to. Right, but what happens is a lot of people they have this decrease in desire and they just settle, even though one partner may be particularly upset about it, and they stop being attentive to the agreement that they made that contract to monogamy, which is I have a responsibility to be interested in your sexual needs, right? And so, uh, you know, getting in people's face about that rather than all the fluff and the, you know, smoke and mirrors, I just want to give it to them so that they can begin living their life in ways that are are particularly meaningful. Did you have a question? I was going to ask them to do it. Oh, go ahead. Go for it. No, I saw that thing. So, you know, one of the things like I've noticed when we're doing the podcast is, when clients who are ther- like who are practitioners come to me, they now come to me and say, "Hey, listen, I listened to this episode, and you said this or that, and that really was illuminating for me. And now I know that I need to do this. So, how do I do that? Have you found with your clients then that those who have read the book have come are, are now uh, have uh, maybe a little bit more tools when they're talking to you or interacting with you going through this process?" Of being able to now maybe even just know how to describe what they're dealing with. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, of course, a lot of the clients that I have, they've already gotten sure. the content okay. uh, sure. uh, from the book. Mm-hmm. But it is incredibly rewarding when someone reaches out to me on Instagram or on Facebook mm-hmm. and says, you know, uh, like I talk about desire. Uh, and and um, you know the different types of desire, and and, and I, you know Melissa knows this that uh, you know there are three types. There's the spontaneous, 
the responsive and the contextual, right? And in our society, uh, people think the, the spontaneous desire is the right and perfect one and that everybody should have spontaneous desire. And if you don't have spontaneous desire, you're somehow broken. You know, spontaneous desire being, I should just be interested in wanting to have sex at a fleet of the moment, independent of what's going on around me. But well, that's, that's how it's in the movies. So I just that's assume, how, that's exactly right. That, right. I just assume that's that's not no, no. <laughs> That's how it's in the movies and in the porn industry. That's the that's the the depiction. But uh-huh. uh, not all men have spontaneous desire, although uh, the uh, uh, that's predominant among men. And certainly, most women don't have spontaneous desire. You see, and and so in the book, I I talk about the different types of desire. And how freeing it is. I had a patient earlier today, how liberating it is that they get to begin to experience their own sexuality as perfect and normal for them. Mm-hmm. And that they are no longer needing to be in competition with their partner around that concept of desire. Where it also is freeing is that they uh, can give up this power control around the wanting to have sex. Because for a lot of women, there isn't this want. It, you know, it's not a spontaneous, right? It's not a spontaneous desire. But as long as there's a willing, right, a willingness to have sex, what they, uh, with what many women report and people who, you know, I actually don't have spontaneous desire. I have more of the responsive. That if I'm, if I'm willing, the want kicks in, right? And that can be, again, that's very liberating for people who, who've been domesticated to believe that, that spontaneous is the only right and perfect one. So getting that kind of feedback where people are much more accepting of themselves, you know, that makes it all worth it. So one of the things that I'm hearing is that for a lot of people, when they hear this, they feel better. Like, I, oh, like, I'm normal. Like, right, people kind of questioning, thinking that maybe what they see or hear that might not align with, you know, who they are or how they are. Like when they hear that it's reassuring, like there's nothing wrong with me in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing I'm always curious about is we're talking to people who have like specific niches and who have a particular message, right? On one hand, as a society, people are very intrigued with sex, right? We hear sex sells. And at the same time, it's also a topic that people are kind of weird about. Like we don't talk about it. Some people are very, very fearful of it maybe even getting labeled as bad. Um, And while I would personally say, you know, I'm not seeing anything controversial in anything that you've written, anything that I've heard you say, I am wondering, now that you've put yourself out there, right? You're doing TikToks, you're on social media, you've written a book on sex. Has there been any pushback or anything unexpected that you've seen from people who might have feelings about the topic in general? Not yet. Uh, but I have some very particular feelings around monogamy that I anticipate will, you know, will ruffle some people's feathers. You know, again, I, I kind of alluded to it a moment ago that when you choose monogamy, and, and for me, monogamy is just one way of being in relationship. It's not the best way, despite mm-hmm. what we're domesticated to believe. It's not the best way. Every way has a set of pros and cons and it's just an agreement on which set of pros and cons you're willing to live with right Mm -hmm. but monogamy itself has with it 
a set of rights and responsibilities. The right is we're agreeing to be able to enjoy each other's bodies in ways that other people don't have access to. As I mentioned, the responsibility is to attend to the sexual needs of the other, right? But within monogamy, what we don't talk about is that there is this slow uh, degrading of like about 4% per year over time. You, you, you know, you less and less like your partner on about 4% per year. And you lust after your partner about uh, 8% less per year, right? So naturally, there's this decline. Uh, and I think some of that has to do with what's called moral hazard. And I talk about this in the book. You know, moral hazard is an economic term that just simply is saying that we tend to take care of things less when we know that someone else is taking care of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, uh, rentals, uh, people who rent tend to take care of the property less than maybe an owner would, right? Or people with health insurance tend to use insurance more than they would if they were paying cash. And so a lot of couples who are in monogamous relationships tend to convince themselves, oh, I'll tend to the marriage tomorrow because I have I have these pressing issues to take care of today. And mm-hmm. of course, as you know, tomorrow never comes. There's always going to be more and more stuff. And then the, the maintenance of the marriage gets pushed back more uh, uh, more. And then you end up really kind of waking up to someone next to you who you don't even know anymore. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, we, we tend to think, oh, monogamy is the best thing when we don't actually take care of the monogamy so that it continues to be rewarding. Mm-hmm. And that can be controversial. But also, you can renegotiate the contract. If you don't want to have sex with your partner anymore, that is totally within your right. People have to have a right to not want to have sex. Mm-hmm. But you, then you have to release your partner of the contract, right? which means you have to be free to get your sexual needs met elsewhere. And that can be a little too much for some people. Do you find that in today, you know, most of kind of, I think, raise a good point, you know, in today's culture and the way we approach things, can that act as a barrier to couples or individuals coming in and getting help? Um, can what act as uh, a barrier? Uh, uh, sorry, the, you know, the kind of taboo that we don't talk about sex. You don't talk about this, right? You know, like you're not supposed to like this, you know, between us and to stay in the bedroom. We don't bring someone else into it. You know, have you found that that's a common theme or an issue that's come up before for for those working with you? Um, not specifically for me, because a uh, because, you know, I am a sex therapist. Mm-hmm. And because I'm expensive, and so people <laughs> they, they, they come in, they're like, "I want to get my money's worth." Oh, so, okay, got it, got it, okay. <laughs> well played, yeah. well said, well said. And I would also say, I would also say this: I have a lot of clients who come to me because they want to share with me things that they don't feel comfortable sharing with their primary therapist. Interesting, right? That they have this you know, uh, uh, a relationship with their primary therapist that is that they've developed an attachment that uh, they feel almost too embarrassed to share with them. And so they come to somebody who they imagine has these conversations all day, every day, who's, you know, certainly I'm not going to judge them for whatever proclivities that they might be interested in. And 
we do the work and then they go back they may even still see their primary therapist and I'm never mentioned right that they 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 they're doing that and I you know it's wonderful to be that option for people and because of my my style is much more of a short term therapy model sure. right i do not want to have clients for 10 years i i that right. would, i you know, stab my eyes out that would be very unfulfilling come in for your few sessions and then you get on with your life so interesting so um, I'm wondering, Tom, for anyone who is thinking about writing a book, dreaming about it, wanting to do that, what are some recommendations you would give them? Really, it's uh, just particularly if you found yourself for a long period of time uh, thinking about writing a book and you just aren't making any progress, get an accountability partner. It, it, you know, it can be as simple as working with someone to put together the outline, right? That may be enough. And it's amazing how uh, 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 powerful just having someone ask you questions to create the content. You know, as therapists, we have a wealth of knowledge, and what we also have that that maybe is a is a real asset to us. We have stories. Yeah, and and the bulk of any kind of self help book is going to be the stories. You don't even need a whole lot of content. Uh, uh, you, as long as you have the stories that you're share, you're you're using as 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 examples, that's going to form the book. That's a good point. Yes. No. Well, I was going to say. I feel like today it's like a like a double whammy, right? Like people are getting sex education, things that they might not have known, and they're getting some information about writing a book, right? So I feel like it's a bonus session. That's what you know, because one of the things we focus on this season is. What are obstacles that people have come overcome in their profession as therapists, right? And how that can be a benefit to those listening. And I definitely think that you've touched on that. But like Melissa said, I also feel like, and I and I kind of mentioned this when I my first comments I made was this is totally an episode that most people I think would not I hadn't even thought of that we would ever do. And I think it's great that we're doing it. <laughs> well, you know, I will, I will just if I can add another piece is an impediment that a lot of over-controlled people have is around perfectionism in general. So that can stall a lot of, of um, progress towards goals is this belief, I have to do it perfect first. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you throughout the writing, I have I often was like, this is shit. No one's going to like this. Mm-hmm. You know, no one, this doesn't interest. And then uh, how relevant is this in my, that was the nice piece of having my, my writing coach, who was not in the discipline at mm. all, to say this is really relevant. People don't need your level of education to for it to be helpful, right? You you don't have to write it at that at your PhD level. Mm-hmm. They just they're just wanting help for their issues, and so so how you talk to your client is what how you would put it in the book, right? Yeah. I was going to say, whereas that negative self-talk, and I think we all do it. I know I do it. And we all do it. Absolutely can hold you back from actually achieving what you want to achieve and actually, you know, kind of, I think, convince you that, oh, I can't do this. When in fact, you know what, as you've proven, you absolutely can. You absolutely can. And you know, that's the the final betrayal. The first betrayal is when, when you've ever had an adult suggest to you that your worth was dependent on their evaluation of you, right? That's the first betrayal, right? Your worth as a person is dependent on 
the other adults evaluate the adults evaluation of you. The final betrayal is when you believe them. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the final betrayal. And so noticing for you when you believe things about you that is very self-limiting. Mm-hmm. And then you perpetuate that, you know, by not writing when you've had this idea percolating for a long time. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned the helpfulness of having working with a coach who's outside of our field, right? I think one of the things that I hear people say, especially like, you know, if you're surrounded by people in the field who have a similar understanding, similar experience, similar language, sometimes I hear people say, well, what do I have to offer? What do I have to say that's different from somebody else's? And it feels like whatever I have to say is no different. You know, what's the point in doing that? And I'm wondering for anyone else who might be, who might have a dream of writing a book, but feels like, what do I have to say that's any different than anybody else is? Is there anything that you would say to them? Anything that you think your writing coach would say to them? Yeah, there is nothing in my book that is new. There's nothing in my book that is new. Everything is uh, 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 packaged to deal with a particular set of problems from a particular perspective. And so it is okay that it's not an original idea. You still have a unique voice. It's like, you know, I'm not the therapist for everybody, right? But I have a unique perspective that will resonate with a certain group of people. And that's what I am hoping, hopefully, in reaching those people who will resonate with that perspective. I love that. That's great. So, Tom, if people are wondering how can they find you, how can they get their hands on this book, tell us how they can find you, your book, how can they find you on social media? So they can find me uh, at drtommurray.com, on Instagram at drtommurray, and on TikTok at realdrtommurray. And your book is on Amazon. Then my book is on Amazon, absolutely. And anywhere, find books are sold. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for joining us. I hope everyone listening has found this as useful and interesting as I and most of them sure have. To everyone, if you have want to reach out to Tom, please do. You can also reach out to Melissa and me um, by going to Melissa, um, by going to her website for, at uh, lifespringcounseling.net. I think, is that correct? Thank you. Yep. And then finding me um, at danielmayerlaw.com. Um, as always, you can also reach out to us on um, the Protecting Your Practice webpage and on Facebook. We welcome your questions, your inquiries, your comments, feedback, all that. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll talk to you on the next episode. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.